Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In the, this episode of the podcast, the topic is the future of virtual care. Our guest is Dr. Joe Kvedar, professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School, author, editor, advisor, and telehealth evangelist. In this conversation, we talk about the history of telehealth and its transformation into a two-channel delivery system combining in-person and virtual care. A precursor in the field, Joe charts the 20-year evolution from show me the data to how do I implement? We briefly discuss the use case of melanoma therapy and AI and imaging from Kedar's own field, dermatology. We discuss COVID-19 effects and other disruptive forces. Joe shares the startups he sees disrupting the game and how he stays up to date. We cover the emerging two-channel care delivery system and discuss the future of virtual care in the next decade. Joe, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me to be, to be on your program. Yes, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm so thrilled to have you for many reasons, but... Um, uh, you know, you've been involved in a field that everyone has come to feel and uh, touch w- without even uh, asking for it over the last year. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a complete change. I I look back on uh, some slides I shared with various audiences uh, a year ago in January of 2020, and they they look very quaint. Uh, the the world's changed a lot, and in, in and. Even though the pandemic is a terrible thing for it did for telehealth, uh, it brought it into people's lives. So we can thank it for that. Uh, may I call you Joe or do you want me oh, to call please. you Dr. Sure. Kavader? No, no, Joe is, is great. All right. Joe, so here's my question. How did you become so interested in telehealth so many years before literally everybody else? Well, it goes back to a, a trait uh, that I think at least during that part of my career. So we're going back almost 30 years now to the early nineties. And uh, I, at that time, I, I really did believe that if, if I had an insight on anything that I was probably one of the last people on the planet to have that insight, it's an insecurity thing. Um, I've kind of grown out of it nowadays, but so, so that's, that's an important part of the story. What, what happened was I was in a bit of a career shift. I had started my uh, academic career in the laboratory with like many people in the Harvard system. And uh, it just wasn't going particularly well for me. I wasn't that motivated by what I was studying and by the intensity of basic science. So I was looking for other things to do. And my department chair said, well, there's this new technology called digital imaging. Uh, we think maybe it could be of high enough resolution to substitute for Kodachrome slides and we might even be able to use it for clinical diagnosis. So I was off looking at that technology in a very specific research project. And I literally had an epiphany one day that, gee, <clears throat> if this works, that we can separate the knowledge of clinical care from being in the same room with a patient. And I thought that opens up so many opportunities. The other thing that was happening in the 90s uh, in the U.S. was this intent, and it, and again, it's it's true now as well. But this intense pressure on um, whether we wanted to do uh, different kinds of value-based care 
paradigms and things. So I saw a, an opportunity for efficiency. And, uh, and as I said, I said, well, I made this, uh, I had this epiphany. I must be among the last people, so I better get going. So I started with earnest and building a team and building a program. And I was convinced that I was late to the game. So that's kind of, that's incredible. I mean, you, you were definitely not among the last for sure. Um, (laughs) so this has been a almost, I guess, a 20 year evolution. And, and, and in the early days, I can't imagine people were asking the same questions. Uh, I'm told that there was a lot more, you know, show me why, show me the data, show me why this is important. And, and how has that changed? I guess only over the last year. So from 20 years of oh, trying to convince people of something, so tell me a little bit about the early days and, and then to this year where I, I guess the questions aren't really, is this even a rational approach? It's, you know, it's happening. How, how, how do we do it? Yeah, that, it is interesting. So in the beginning, there was, it was very much like any, I think, medical, any innovation in the medical field gets put through a, uh, and 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 by the way, there's a good reason for this, which is we we never want to hurt our patients, right? So, if I come up with a new, well, let's take laparoscopic surgery as an example, right? We used to take gall gallbladders out by cutting you open and removing them. Now, you can't. That's malpractice. But when laparoscopic surgery came into being, it was a new thing. It had to go through clinical trials. People had to prove it wasn't unsafe. And the same applied to telehealth and and digital medicine. Uh, in the beginning, it was lots of negativity about, uh, you know, I have to see the patient. I had a heart failure doctor lecture me. Oh, I have to see the neck veins and you can't do this and that. So it was that skepticism. And so uh, the answer to that was I, my favorite phrase was, well, I think that's an empiric question. Let's do a test and find out. And so for the first dozen or so years or 10 years, anyway, we we, it was a research project, or multiple research projects, hmm. with the goal of showing that quality would not be eroded. And we did prove that. Hmm. Uh, then we shifted into a mode where, and again, the, the timing is rough, so may, maybe it was more than 10 years that we did the quality part. But we shifted into a mode uh, where people were more like interested in how to solve for workflow and how to solve for reimbursement. And we stayed in that mode really till April or March or April of, of 2020 when things exploded because of the intensity of lockdown and the insistence of the federal government, at least in the U.S. And I have some stats from other countries. We might want to get to that as well. But the, the, the federal government in the U.S. saying we, we will relax all these regulatory burdens that we had put on this, this industry and, and it took off. Um, well, let's get into all that. But but first, th- there are some terms here that are slightly confusing because some of them are legal terms, others are medical terms, and then again, there's obviously IT terms. So I- I'm just going to kind of line up a, a, a bunch of terms here, and, and if you can clear up whether they're just historically different phases of the development, or to you they or, or to the government they mean different things. So connected health is my understanding what was a term that was used early on. I know telehealth much more. That was certainly in my academic uh, work, uh, you know, throughout the 90s and 2000s. That was the, the term for it. But then digital medicine started to sort of take off and, the, you know, corresponded with the trend in sort of digital and everything was digital. 
mm-hmm. now it seems like you at least are starting to call it virtual care. What, if anything, do all these terms mean and do they have a historical or legal meaning, medical meaning? What, what's the difference between these terms? Well, I have to be candid with you and say I, I, one of the things I, I don't like about our field is that we keep changing names. Um, and in the beginning, I think people did that because they felt like if they invented a new name, it would the spotlight would shine shine on them. Um, so Connected Health came out of our group. Uh, we, we sort of claim credit for, for coining that term. And the reason we coined that term in the mid-2000s, the middle of that decade was because, believe it or not, telemedicine was a term nobody wanted to hear. They just sort of said, yeah, we tried that. It didn't work. And it was a little bit before the the era that you just described where it was digital health, digital medicine was kind of the term. So we said, well, we were working with a guy who was doing a lot of research in connected home. That was his thing. And we sort of said, well, why don't we do connected health? And it took off. But it was purely self-serving in the sense that we wanted people to listen to us. And they did. They're like, oh, that's interesting. What are you talking about? Uh, it, was, it was telehealth with a, with a new name on it. So that happens. We, you, you didn't mention e-health. You didn't mention m-health. Those were terms sure. of art for a while. I'll say digital medicine, digital health are very broad umbrella terms that can include everything from uh, supply chain automation to devices to anything that has a digital component in the in the ecosystem of of healthcare, which is again very broad. Um, uh, informatics would fall under that. Um, electronic health records, all part of digital health, and then there's the part about care delivery using technology like uh, video or audio or uh, asynchronous communication, say over a patient portal. We call that bundle telehealth because it's actually using tele to provide healthcare. Um, and I think that takes care of most of the ones you mentioned. It it is it's a again it's a bit of a uh, a nest of uh, confusion, and and I don't feel good about that. I, I have to say, virtual wasn't one I invented, but that was fo- foisted on me. Uh, so I said, okay, fine, if we want to call it that. People seem to want to bring a new adjective in because it somehow makes it like a new thing again, and it's the same old thing. So that's my well, it's the same old thing. But on the other hand, the the word care is different from from medicine, uh, mm-hmm. right? Is that the behavioral trend? the The last one, sort of virtual care, is that because you're focusing more on the kind of behavioral medicine aspect? I think it's meant to imply that there's a one of the things that digital does is it it it's a bit of a, lo- um, uh, it, it's a, it democratizes, um, right? So we, the first phase of, of that was back when uh, all of a sudden people could get all of our textbooks on the internet and people would walk into my office with, well, I, I diagnosed myself, doc, I have lichen planus and this is a picture I saw of my rash. And, and now, of course, everything is there and it's much more interactive. So it's meant to imply that that care is a two-way street and the digital tools enable us to have a very um, interactive um, care care experience with our patients, whereas medicine is much more clinical in its, in its connotation. It's what I, as a clinician, feel like I need both to, to make a diagnosis and craft a care plan. 
um, independent of whether I'm going to actually care for someone, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Joe, I, I wanted to ask you about some of the emerging and, and perhaps to you more most interesting use cases lately, because, you know, we, we could talk literally about any field of medicine I have, uh, you know, I could imagine at, at least, you know, in, in this day of Corona and, and somebody would have tried it in virtual mm -hmm. form just because, uh, you know, out of, uh, out of desperation, perhaps, but also out of uh, just kind of innovation and, uh, and but, but need. But what are some of the more interesting cases? Uh, I had a couple in mind. I wanted to, to, to touch certainly on imaging. I know that's something that, you know, is relevant in, in any case. And, uh, and I had a special interest to just hear your, your take on melanoma since that's your, uh, well, I guess one of your fields. Uh, but what are some of the other, I mean, the, a very basic one would seem to be kind of online triage. I mean, the very fact that we can't just, or, or one would think, uh, you know, even at MGH, they're trying to limit people coming into the hospital. So, so triaging people in a somewhat more advanced way than the usual sort of phone triage used to be. Tell me a little bit about how, uh, how the use cases are evolving and what you are looking at as the more in insightful sort of new types of use cases. Well, it's a wonderful question. I, I, I guess I start by the last year was really the headline was that the doctor's office made it into your living room. And everyone, at least I think in the U.S., virtually everyone experienced that. There were just, I just saw my uh, paper copy of the Journal of the American Medical Association yesterday, and, and there are three articles, there are two articles in an editorial around this, this topic. Uh, and again, to the point we were making earlier, it's no longer, is this uh, a a legitimate way of providing care, but what what do we need to do to, to integrate it and knit it in? So there's still a lot to do in that space. Now, the, the good and the bad of that is that it, it's all about virtual video visits, which candidly aren't that innovative or that interesting, but, it, but it's something we know, which is a visit with our doctor taken into your life by using a technology. And so everyone is is immediately relatively comfortable with that, and which is why it took off the way it did. And even health plans now are a, a lot of them. As we as we start to look at the future of what we do after the pandemic, are insisting that we do this by video. Then there's a quite a bit of debate on audio only, and it has to do with disparities and the like. So I just mentioned that because any other use case we might talk about is, uh, for better or worse, pretty peripheral to that these days. But That's interesting. <clears throat> I mean, a similar thing has happened in business, right? I mean, at least you know, in my life, the 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 Zoom life or the the video life, which I, I for one actually also think it is, it is a it's a, a bit of an aberration in the sense that it it dominate you know it creates one sort of dominant type of usually actually a, still a one way communication just with mm -hmm. with more. You know, with more going on, and it's uh, right. it just kind of locks you down into a specific type of of mode, essentially. So I could imagine that that must be a little frustrating for you because you've seen so many other things. So, so give 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 us a sense of some of the other things that are much more innovative that 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 are still now actually possible to to do. Well, asynchronous care and, and uh, right right along with asynchronous care in the same breath, you mentioned specialty telehealth. So co companies like uh, Roe, Hims, Nurex, where they take something that, that's very transactional, that millions of people want and need, 
like birth control or, or uh, med- medication for erectile dysfunction. And yet we as healthcare providers have put them through those, those people who need that service have put them through the same incredibly difficult, non-consumer friendly experience that we put everyone through who has <clears throat> a heart attack or needs brain surgery. Um, and companies have peeled those off and done very well. Uh, some of them now publicly traded uh, based on the fact that they can make it very simple for someone with an exchange of messages, no, no video contact, no, no real-time conversation or rarely to get those services done. So that's, <clears throat> that's just going to grow because now people, once again, they, the, the headline is still, oh, telehealth, I get what that is. And then you say, oh, by the way, well, how are you doing? You know, do you need access to birth control? Oh, I get it. I can do it that way. And it feeds on itself. So that's an important sector. It's a really important sector. It's growing fast. And and I think it's very disruptive to to mainstream healthcare delivery. and And I like, I think we need to be disrupted. So there's that. A second one is, uh, um, and I'll lump two together there as well. One, it's it's home devices and remote patient monitoring, depending on how you like to to call it. Remote patient monitoring is kind of coming out of a a bit of a slumber. We've we've known about it for years. My group was doing work in this area right after I, as I said earlier, in the mid '90s. Right after we started, we started doing it because we saw it as a tool for efficient care delivery. And it hasn't really taken off. There's now reimbursement codes in the states. There's a lot of work. The FDA's uh, reg- relaxing some regulations. Hmm. Um, and as we move to more value-based care, again arrangements, people are starting to pick up on it. But another uh, uh, side of that same coin is home devices. Devices like one 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 company I like to mention is called Tido, and their device is called Tido Care, and it's a little bit like a a uh, uh, tricorder in the sense that you can do uh, 10 or 15 things with it. You can listen to your your heart. You can look in your throat. You can look in your ear. And we don't. I don't know how we're going to get one of those in every medicine cabinet, but if we do, that broadens the use cases for telehealth enormously from urgent care and behavioral health to much, much more. That's uh, su- super interesting. Um, yeah, and then the third is 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 uh, uh, digital biomarkers is a really fascinating, uh, innovative group of companies that can pick. Uh, mostly, it has to do with voice, or in one case, cough. Uh, one of the companies that I'm I'm an advisor to a Australian company called Resap, and based on the sound of your cough, they can diagnose your respiratory illness. So again, you think about needing uh, a video doctor for something and then having them say, well, I, 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 we need a chest x-ray or we need something else. Or based on what you just did with your cough, I can tell you have pneumonia and we better treat it. That's a pretty interesting advance. And there's companies doing that with uh, depression screening and a variety of other things as well. There's even one that was able to predict based on the tone of your voice that you had an impending heart attack coming. So hmm. it's a pretty interesting area, re- really early stage, but you can see that growing as well. Now, all of that is, except the asynchronous part, is in service for more video visits, which I've already said are probably not the future. 
But the idea is that we're getting and home testing, we're getting more and more of these peripheral um, uh, uh, industries that help us do more and more care in the home. And I think that's that's sort of where it's all headed. Last one I'll mention quickly is because it's a fun story of uh, I, I a year ago, I, I couldn't really get any attention from, let's say, um, the example I'm going to use is orthopedic surgery. They'd say, Joe, you know, we, f- we fix things in the operating room. We're, we're like carpenters. We do hips and whatnot. Uh, what, why do you think telehealth would be of any value to us? But as the pandemic came along, they started doing pre-op visits that way. They could do post-op wound checks that way. They can do hire physical therapists to do remote PT. And all of a sudden, they're, they're thinking about ways to refine their practice in this new hybrid environment to make it more efficient for them and their patients. So that's a really interesting advance too, when people start to really look at how do we optimize our brick and mortar? How do we think about working in a virtual environment some of the time and in in an office some of the time? And what does that mean? What does that mean for overhead? What does that mean for use of space, et cetera? And you're starting to see that happen as well. Um, I, I find that hybrid idea very interesting, and I want to I want to follow up on that in a second. But one of the sort of things that I worry about with all of these disruptions, right? And I wanted you maybe to comment on that on a more systemic way, because you know, in my world, there's certainly you know there's tech that disrupts. There's uh, obviously regulation very much, you know, in the health field. Um, and then, of course, we have talked about some startups and, you know, innovative ways of doing things. And, and that could come from startups. It could come from licensed technology out of hospitals or combinations thereof. Uh, but then you have people's reactions and the dynamics when you get it into patients' lives and they, you know, either works or doesn't. But, you know, whether it's disruptive or not, right, the, the, uh, one of the things that changes the, the slowest is sort of the overall system. I'm just wondering in terms of very ambitious things like population health, or even just if you are a health system like partners, it's one thing to have all these startups and all these experiments. Uh, but, but you know, in many other fields, you reach this sort of like uh, pilot purgatory where you have so many experiments going on. But if you are a PCP and you're sitting there, I mean, do you really have the energy to look at all this data? Is the system set up for you? I mean, we're talking about a situation where the average American, I guess, you know, sees their doctor uh, some minutes uh, a year. Yeah. How is that time going to be well spent? And, you know, how many minutes of that is is truly available data that, that they're actually going to look at? And, and what is just going to be, if you're lucky enough to know you have an ailment or think you have an ailment, you can contact one of these exciting startups. But if no one's listening to my cough at the right time, what good does it do me that there is a startup that analyzes cough? So I'm just wondering, you know, as you have seen this evolve, when does it come together? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, we, at uh, the, by the way, our organization is rebranded as Mash General Brigham now, just a, a small um, fine point. But but at any, any rate, we, we uh, in, again, in 2019, what, what sounds a bit quaint, we had a as an or as a health system, a five-year vision for digital first to to be able to um, <clears throat> to offer our patients an experience where they could look at us as a digital company first, and not just a place where you get operations and come for tests. Uh, and ironically, the the pandemic disrupted that 
even though, as I said, telehealth is now the big news. Uh, there are a lot of other things that that team is is working on, and and they there's a term called technical debt, which I think is fascinating. But all the things that they had to do quickly in March and April that didn't have proper coding or proper IT support had to be redone in the latter part of the year. So that set them back about a year on that vision. But they're still quite intent on this idea that you. Um, interact with us through a digital interface. That means maybe it's a symptom checker. Uh, maybe it's a bot. Um, obviously, I say obviously, but I, I have had experiences in the tech support world, two, two different companies, which I shan't name, one of which dr drives me to pull my hair out because the bot is so obviously a bot and doesn't help. The other that starts with a bot and within 30 seconds gets me to a human being because their system senses that I need a human being. So we can do this automated front end stuff and make you feel more cared for. And I think that's the key to the patient side is you, you must feel like we care about you. And that goes from your doctor all the way through. Uh, God knows we have so much way, ways to go on customer friendliness. We, we need to be more like Uber and Lyft. You know, we're, we're, we're so 20th century and all that. Now you call my practice if you want to, an appointment and someone will call you back. How, you know, 20th century is that? You can't even get an appointment by going on our patient portal and booking with me. Mm -hmm. So we have a long way to go. And I think we're not alone. You might you might single out Kaiser Permanente as, as the lead in this because they've been so integrated for so long between the, the payer side and the provider side. But most uh, provider organizations are struggling with this because, it, it, again, at the at the heart of it, people generally, and I think patients and doctors both feel like healthcare delivery is a very tactile experience. And so we, we've had to convince them, pandemic helped, that not everything has to be tactile. Uh, right. Some things still are, and we still need offices, and we still need hospitals, and we still need emergency rooms. But but some things are not, and, and it's that whatever 15 or 20% of our ambulatory activity that we are comfortable now transitioning to a virtual world and how to knit that all together uh, is the next uh, challenge. Uh, I want to bring us back a little bit more to the to this hybrid idea that I think is very important, both uh, you know as a practical challenge, and it, it will become eventually a regulatory challenge, and it's also, I guess, a patient challenge to try to figure out when and when and how are you going to try to seek you know help uh, you know in a face to face manner and when can you right. rely on, on on that infrastructure what what do you think about how one sets sets up that at at a hospital level what's what needs to change i mean is the entire infrastructure there uh, equipped to to this new world i mean even in people's homes right i mean i was lucky i had set up my own home studio back here because i was you know, I've been working from home uh, for decades, but but also I, I started finally investing in my own, basically, office. Yeah. And I was lucky because it would happen before the pandemic. Others were not so lucky. And, uh, and now we all have had to change our uh, our office uh, infrastructure at home, even for the kids, right? So you, mm -hmm. an average family might have four or five offices of sorts. How right. does this affect uh, I, I, I guess the situation at a professional care delivery. 
Well, I, I, I'm happy to answer that. I do want to put some guardrails around it just because we could probably have a whole nother hour on, on that one topic. And so one thing I'll say is we, we, I, we realize deeply how important it is to solve the digital divide. You, you just mentioned your scenario and, and we know there are many, many people who either can't, don't have a room to have that home office or can't afford a tablet or smartphone. Uh, so I just want to I want to acknowledge that because if we don't, then we'll get you and I will both get criticized for for being tone deaf. Um, but beyond that, and and again, it's not that that I don't want to solve that, but I don't think that's at the heart of your question. Um, I think the 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 biggest, in my estimation, and in my experience, the patient side of the equation is quite ready. I mean, when we and I like to talk about the magic triad of access quality and convenience. When we when we give a patient that, and I've had every Tuesday afternoon, so this afternoon I have my telehealth visits. When when you hit that, it's there's this joy that they feel. And you feel it too, because you've provided quality care without inconveniencing them. Um, so we know what that's like. To get it so that every interaction or, or at least the vast majority of those virtual interactions cover those three areas requires some work. The, the bad thing that the pandemic did, or the unfortunate consequence of it, I should say, is that we did everything by telehealth for a couple of months. And that's not right either. And so people, all these crazy things like people saying, well, uh, you know, in, in May we went. The volume went back. That must mean telehealth's a failure. No, it's not a failure. As I said a minute ago, probably 15 to 20 percent of our ambulatory volume makes sense to do this way. It will grow, as I said earlier, because we'll have more and more externalities that will help it grow. Um, so, figuring out what the right use cases are is is job number one for the provider. And I see, unfortunately, um, quite. Uh, checkered uh, interest in that. Some people think that it's random, literally random. Some people don't want to do any telehealth. Some people want to just do it all. There's, We've got a, every specialty, every uh, probably every practice has to set those guidelines for themselves. Um, How has important. it affected specifically, uh, you know, dermatology? I mean, we were going to talk a little bit about melanoma therapy specifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an area that that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, what progress is melanoma therapy making, both with telehealth and and, and with uh, progress in in imaging and, and other areas? It would seem to me to be an area that, for many many years, had very disappointing, <coughs> at least from the patient standpoint, very disappointing progress with therapeutics and 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 with therapies and with even identif early identification, but certainly with, with outcomes. Uh, is something uh, happening there where, where there is a coalescing kind of, of, of uh, telehealth uh, type uh, approaches and imaging? Uh, and what is your vision of, of where that field is, is going? Is, are we finally heading into a kind of a quicker innovation spiral in that area? It's, it's a hard thing to say, and the reason is not that the technology, there's too many negatives, the technology exists to do, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but it is the one thing that I take care of as a dermatologist that is life-threatening. I mean, it's not the one, but it's the big one. 
And so for me, and I say me in the grandiose sense, my field, my, 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 my uh, colleagues, for us to give over a diagnostic exercise to something like an artificial intelligence algorithm is very hard. And so it's interesting, but we can talk about AI now for a minute. So the, the AI algorithms that are uh, in place that have been tested in the world of dermatology are most about pigmented lesions. Um, and there was a famous paper in Nature, it's now four years ago, I think, uh, from a group at Stanford saying that the headline was that the, their algorithm could diagnose melanoma better than a dermatologist based on images. And, you know, that, that they could not commercialize that technology. I followed it very closely. I know the people, I know the, the inventor personally, and it just didn't come out because the marketplace just simply wasn't ready for that. Hmm. Whereas in the area of, by contrast, ophthalmology and, and uh, retinal uh, uh, diabetic retinopathy, we have a product on the market now. There's a reimbursement code. Uh, lots and lots of progress has been made. So I think, and, I, and I'll confess, I am also advisor to a, another dermatology AI company that's not working on melanoma, so I have a prejudice. But I think that getting uh, AI into the diagnostic realm will be not in pigmented lesions and will be in the realm of primary care, helping them triage. Uh, that's my, my um, belief. Uh, what we didn't talk about just very quickly is the actual therapeutics of melanoma, which is it is amazing now, the, the immunotherapies and so forth. And, and it's a, such a wonderful field, not my personal area, but I just did, I wanted to give a shout out to all the people that are doing wonderful work in that area. Well, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, sometimes these things are, uh, you know, they, sometimes they come together and, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, they, they don't. Uh, but if you look at then the future of of healthcare, w <laughs> hybrid healthcare, I should say, right? So telehealth, uh, as it sort of fits into this emerging new system, and, and if you look more long term, people have been talking about uh, sort of the decreasing the importance of of the medical doctor's expertise versus the technologies versus the other types of care providers or even versus the consumer or the patient themselves right there are all of these flattening the hierarchy trends that a lot of people have been talking about and and you referenced it early on in this conversation mm -hmm. you know back when when we would come in with a printout from the internet and say i figured out my disease where do we stand on that now? Because surely we have come somewhat further, right? The technologies may not be there, you know, in your field of dermatology, perhaps not in melanoma. But on the other hand, one can actually procure pretty advanced analyses on many things and certainly knowledge on many things. And if you're a good searcher on the internet and look through PubMed or whatever it is, I mean, I've certainly had experiences where I felt like I kind of knew uh, in a very, very small field, you, you kind of can know a lot fairly quickly if you know how to research things. So what does that mean for going forward? Does that mean that doctors generally have to uh, change the way they look at themselves, uh, whether they do want to be bottlenecks in systems or not? Um, does it have anything to do with how we train physicians going forward? 
as you're putting kind of your futurist uh, hat on, and I know you, you have done in several in books before, where is this now heading, uh, knowing everything you know about the implementation challenge? Well, I, I guess uh, if there, let's see, I, th I think I'll, I'll say this, uh, I, I, rarely, I rarely make a blanket statement, but I believe that what you just described is nothing but good for our profession. Um, and the reason for that is if we weed out uh, arrogant clinicians who, again, use their sort of textbook knowledge base as a tool to um, make care a one-way street, I tell you, Tron, what to do and you do it. And if you don't do it, you're the bad guy. I've ne that's never been a good model of care. Um, and so the fact that we now have tools where you can come to me and we can interact and and you can you can say well I I mean I I think that's nothing but good I, there there is evidence very strong evidence that an engaged patient will have better outcomes and that's what this enables us to do uh, now um, so I, I uh, had a, a woman the other day with a really kind of unusual form of dermatomyositis where because dermatomyositis is both muscle and skin this particular version is skin only. And we have to make some choices on therapy. So I wrote three things down for her. I said, go home and read about them and tell me what you want to do. Now, I'm not abdicating um, because there's the other half of, of the answer to your question is, is something that so far no algorithm can do, which is clinical judgment. And that is, that is a really subtle, it's a little bit like... Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, the tipping point kind of com comment. It, mm -hmm. There's something that goes on where you say, well, now you can, you could say, and others have that, that, that clinical judgment is really about implicit bias. And maybe it is, but there's something there that our cortical capabilities do that a computer can't do. And of course, there's the emotional intelligence and the caring part, which no computer can do. So I think doctors have a bright future. Um, and I and I actually have done a there's a TED talk that I did on this where the title was that the future of digital medicine is humans and and the point was uh, we we need to to be comfortable delegating tasks to computers that do them better than us and if it's uh, anything to do with large data sets and calling out uh, trends while well, we know that AI does that very well. But we do those things like emotional intelligence, uh, judgment, et cetera. And so far, I'm just not aware of any computer that comes close. You know, it's, I think your message is so important because there is something there about, uh, you know, the nature of expertise. And I think it's going to be a question, isn't it, going forward, you know, machines are getting better, right? So there are you can't be overconfident either because there are aspects, you know, continuously that are improving where machines are, are getting better. But but there is certainly a little residual uh, of, of judgment that we have to hone, I guess, also, right? You can't just sit there and on your laurels and and, and think that what was your expertise 10 years ago is going to count, count now. Um, my question at this point, Joe, is more, how do you stay up to date how do you advise others who are tracking this field of virtual care and telehealth? How should they um, stay up to date, maybe for their own uh, you know, medical benefit, but also if they're tracking the field for, I don't know, investment and uh, 
not that we're going to give investment advice, but you know, just in terms of checking what's happening in this field, you mentioned a bunch of startups. We haven't had time to cover even you know all of them in depth. Uh, where do you go? Um, where are there? Where is there solid information these days or exciting yeah. new developments? <clears throat> yes. Uh, so. Um, I'm, I'm privileged in a way because I'm, I'm sort of surrounded every day by people that are feeding me, uh, tidbits and, and, uh, knowledge bits. And, and one of the reasons I keep, uh, doing what I do with such gusto is because I learn from almost every conversation. Hmm. Um, I do read a couple of, uh, newsletters regularly. One of them is, is a hymns newsletter called Moby Health News. And the other was is by a guy who used to run Moby Health News. His name is Brian Dolan. What he does now is called E and O. Uh, uh, I think it's exits, and I forget what the second what the O stands for. Uh, and that gives me a pretty good sense of what's going on in the innovation space because it's incredibly hard to follow without getting those. And those those come out. Uh, Moby Health comes out at several times a week. E and O twice a week, and. I read them because there's always news and there's always someone acquiring someone or there's always someone getting funded or their series A, B or C. Um, it's very, very helpful. I have particular areas that I'm interested in. I mentioned some of them already, digital biomarkers, uh, specialized telehealth uh, devices, et cetera. So I, I follow those more closely. Um I'm, I was I'm just curious, but in, in your own field, I mean, so so this is great advice sort of, if you're following innovation, but you, you straddle a, a bunch of topics also sort of academically and in your sort of clinical practice. How has that changed? And are, are those also, are you referring now to newsletters where you're actually going all the way down to the academic articles? Or is that sort of a different strain of, of, of sort of information sources? Or are they... Are they now coming together in these newsletters quite a bit? Yeah, no. The the two I mentioned are purely about startups and and um, everything to do with who gets funded and who's exiting and whatnot. It's it's which in in the field of digital health medicine is critical because that's where, as you and I said, so much happens. On the on the medical side, I'm privileged to be the editor in chief at Nature's Digital Medicine Journal, so I see manuscripts coming in on a daily basis, uh, which gives me a, a sense of, and, and about 60% of it is AI related and machine learning related. So I have a pretty strong bath of that every day. Um, and then my own specialty journals, of course, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, et cetera, are journals I read regularly, JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine as well. Well, it's a fertile uh, space of knowledge for sure. You you must uh, certainly keep busy. Uh, if you look back at your career, did you have any idea that you were going to straddle all these fields, sort of between being a practitioner, you know, a researcher, uh, basically a spokesperson, and now uh, taking a role in American Telemedicine Association, and you know, really uh, testifying in Congress? Even mm. was was all of these were all of these things planned? No, I, I um, so we, we didn't talk about my, my origins. I grew up in Vermont, central Vermont. I went to medical school in Vermont, thought uh, when I was in high school and college, thought I was going to be a, a rural family doctor. And mm -hmm. um, that, that didn't work out for me uh, early on in my 
medical school career, I realized that family doctor wasn't for me. And, but yeah, there were, the, and, and we talked about that pivot point earlier where I was just messing around with digital cameras and thought, oh my God, I've got to change everything. And I never looked back after that, but um, no, none of this was planned. And, and sometimes I, I, I have the privilege of mentoring a lot of folks. Sometimes people ask me and it's a mix of, you want a strategy. So there were times when I said, I want to get involved in X. So administration slash uh, management. I said, I, I, I need more of that. So I look for opportunities there um, at given times and so forth. But sometimes following your nose isn't a bad thing for a while anyway, especially when you're young, right? That's true. And Joe, as we are coming to the end here, one thing that I really hoped that we could explore, which had, I think, less to do with uh, digital health, was your interest in, uh, or our shared interest in, in wine. I know you're a wine uh, connoisseur. How how did that happen? Is it just one of those sort of random hobbies that ke- keeps you sane, or or has that also sort of evolved over a very long time? Well, it has evolved, and I, and I uh, I like to think it's a healthy obsession, but it's a bit of an obsession. Anything I do that's not related to my career is either reading about wine or listening to wine podcasts or what have you. Um, and and people in the field will tell you, I'm sure you feel the same way that. You, you can never learn enough. It's it's that got that parallel that no matter where, when you think you've learned, I'm not I mean not even close to a master of wine or any of that. But people who have achieved those certifications will tell you that they never stop learning, and that's one of the things I love about it. Training my palate, tasting as much as I can. It's 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 just a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a to to speak of this hybrid experience. It's definitely still a very sensory experience, right? Where the human, the human is in the loop, and and there wouldn't be, uh, I guess, a, a big point of taking the human completely out of that loop. It's uh, at least one of those uh, still f- human experiences where the enjoyment is directly related to you being, uh, I guess, involved in a in a physical way, tasting yeah, tasting the wine. Indeed. Well, look, this has been fascinating. Uh, I think that uh, it is a fast-moving field. Um, any final observations on, you know, on on uh, on this field, or 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 you know, anything that we haven't covered uh, as a last last word? Well, no, you're a skilled interviewer, and I think we've covered a lot. I, I want to emphasize that we're only at the beginning. People think we've somehow achieved this, climb this mountain. This is it's really like base camp. Uh, now that we have people uh, on both sides of the care spectrum jazzed about telehealth, it's our opportunity to do something really powerful in, in uh, digital experience. Well, I certainly hope you're, you're right, because I think we need it. There's, uh, you know, we haven't talked about that, but uh, the future of the pandemic, the future of a lot of different challenges, right? It is this mixture of uh, the, the hopes and fears that we all have for our, for our future. I wish you the best of luck, and I hope we can stay in touch as we explore these uh, topics further. Well, th- thank you, and, and I would love to stay in touch as well. Great. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 88 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of virtual care. In this conversation, we talk about the history of telehealth and its transformation into a two-channel delivery system combining in-person and virtual care. A precursor in the field, Joe charts the 20-year evolution from show me the data to how do I implement 
We briefly discussed the use case of melanoma therapy and AI imaging from Kvedar's own field, dermatology. We discussed COVID-19 effects and other disruptive forces. Joe shares the startups he sees disrupting the game and how he stays up to date. We cover the emerging two-channel care delivery system and discuss the future of virtual care in the next decade. My takeaway is that telehealth has come a long way in 20 years. And it's not just about the technologies, but it is also about adapting to a hybrid model of care where you each time select the communication mode that best serves the patient, given the constraints, and still is efficient for the health system at large. The future of virtual care is up for grabs. It is already starting to look different from five years ago. Leapfrogging seems entirely possible, and we will see new winners but also old champions will rise to the challenge having invested time and resources in the area for decades. What's certain is that both infrastructure and skills will need to evolve with the challenges and opportunities ahead. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 19, Digital Health in Future Pandemics, episode 55, AI for Medicine, or episode 82, Digital Health AI. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.